All Canadians are treaty people. All Canadians, their governments have made certain commitments and promises to the Indigenous peoples in this country to have a peaceful and respectful relationship so that we can share the land and its resources to mutual benefit. And reconciliation, it seems like a, a huge undertaking, which it is, but it starts with each of us, each Canadian, each individual doing just small little steps to making it a more respectful society. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Stories from Indigenous Public Servants. Kansai. This is Indigenous Perspectives, a program where we hope to explore the experiences and perspectives of Indigenous public servants, what reconciliation means to them, and what it can be for Canada. Madeline Redfern, social activist and two-time mayor of Iqaluit Nunavut, said, We'll never achieve true reconciliation without first realizing that systemic discrimination occurred and is still occurring. Many of the same mindsets, ignorances, biases, and prejudices are very much in play within our society. Most people believe that since I am nice or good, and that the system and policies are done carefully and with good intention. And if any discrimination exists, it's someone else, or from above. Rarely can anyone identify the why or who that perpetuates discrimination, because it's invisible to them. She continues. That's why it's incredibly important to include those who have been actively discriminated against in government policies and actions. Their views on how the system hurts and how to make improvements is key to addressing inherent systemic problems. Not just consultation, but actively support minorities to participate in all aspects of the process. Evaluation, analysis, assessments, revised and new policy discussions, debates and development, and, of course, training, hiring, and implementation. Ideally, the great number of people who should be participating are those who are disproportionately affected by policies or actions that discriminate. Their voices should be the most prevalent. And now, in their own words, the thoughts and feelings of some of Canada's own public servants about their ideas for the way forward on reconciliation. So speaking just in terms of yourself as an individual, not not as a department or even mm -hmm. a, a public servant, but just as an indigenous person, 
what are, would be the three priorities of things that you'd like to see changed? In government or, or in general? It can be either way in, in our country because reconciliation, mm-hmm. like, it, it's, it's bigger than just the federal government. It is. Yeah, it is. So three things that I'd like to see changed. The first one is the definition of Aboriginal or Indigenous. I work really hard to ensure that any opportunity I have to demystify that the term Aboriginal is reflective of all the three groups. The Canadian Constitution defines Aboriginals as First Nations, Inuit, Métis. So that's one of my first areas is we shouldn't always just use that term Aboriginal or Indigenous. That We should always define the three groups. They deserve to be recognized as the three groups. The second one is perception that they get everything for free, like Canadian perception, you know, that education is free, healthcare is free, housing is free. So I'm thinking more broadly with perceptions of some of the minds sitting at Christmas dinner, for example. Oh, they're so lucky, you know, Aboriginals get everything for free, and little do they know that... If an Aboriginal wants funding for post-secondary, the the long process, the application process is is quite lengthy, detailed. Uh, my daughter just graduated from Carleton a year and a half ago, and now my son's in his first year. And I can assure you, the application process to be considered, considered, not guaranteed, for funding. Is very detailed. So for me, that's another public perception that I'd really like to to bring awareness to. Um, and then I guess the third, um, so definition, perceptions, and the celebration and the opportunity for um, all Canadians to celebrate one another. You know, National Aboriginal Day, June 24th, not celebrated the First Nations in Métis cultures. There's been advocacy from all three groups to have this as a statutory holiday in Canada. Of course, we're limited to statutory holidays. Province and territories have their own as well, but I think that would really increase the awareness of the three peoples and help address some of the perceptions that there are, like there's Queen Victoria weekend, right, in May. Maybe we can work in May and use that stat holiday in June instead, for example. So I'd say those three areas. Definition, address some of the perceptions that they get everything for free, and recognizing the people nationally. You know, government is so big. And one of the things that I realized when I uh, finished my term with the TRC, I took some time off I needed to recover spiritually. I came back into the government and I'd realized, um, you know, I was encompassed with reconciliation, TRC, and the stories of survivors and such. 
um, I was a bit surprised that the, um, the knowledge level was pretty basic. I had hoped that it was more advanced than it was. So because I had been making these presentations while I was at the TRC to universities and such, I got permission from my boss, a director, to start um, evangelizing reconciliation and, and just to create a forum. And it's a forum so that people can understand, okay, now I get it. And that's one of the things that people come to me after my presentations I never knew. And now that you know, through your own interpretations, you can go off and reconcile. And whatever that means from your own department, whether you're a policy analyst, whether you're a director general or what have you, now you can um, have your own interpretation of what reconciliation is. One of the things that I'm challenging people to do now, it's not an observer sport. It's not Aboriginal awareness or Indigenous or Inuit or Métis or First Nations awareness. Okay, now I get it and now I can continue doing what we're doing. I make the analogy that it is something like um, innovation which means you need to do something differently. And my colleague, my old colleague, uh, Catherine Fournier, she once said, you know, for those that are policy analysts and are developing box notes, box notes or such, if you can put in there, in a bullet, this contributes towards reconciliation, that's a good start. So that kind of changes people's mindsets. Um, it means that we've, we're doing something slightly different than we did before. Um, if it doesn't contribute towards reconciliation, then I would have a serious look at what we're doing. And I think this government as a whole really kind of wants to embrace it. Um, and I think this government uh, or bureaucrats right now need to understand just a bit more of our history so that they can say, okay, now I get it. Well, I'd definitely like to see a lot more Aboriginal people climbing up the executive chain. Right now, there's not a lot of representation, uh, in, in particular, the groups that I've been involved in. There is in, in other groups, like uh, Indian Northern Affairs, there, there's definitely a lot of representation in that group. But when I first joined public service in public works, uh, I was the only Native, I think, in my entire group of 60-some plus people, or maybe I just didn't know anybody else identified, but I, I felt kind of like there wasn't a lot. And I just like seeing a little more representation in the government itself. There is definitely some some programs and, and well, not so like incentives, but uh, supports out there to help people climb the ladder. It's just a bit tricky. I think there's just, uh, there's probably a lot of a lot of hesitance from that version of people in general, too, to, to trust the government, especially if you're from some of those rural uh, countries. Uh, areas like I was from uh, rural northern Ontario, and the government's really spoken in a negative way, municipal, federal, all levels. It's kind of, they see it as a nice place. Um, but it's a really excellent place, a uh, secure job um, for people. And it'd be nice for me to see people get more interested. But even that, too, I think that that's kind of it's a nice, it's a nice thing to have these things in the government that are ready to help support people. But when I first started, I was mentioning that it was really hard for me to get into the government, and uh, I tried to use my uh, Aboriginal status uh, to get into the government, and that didn't really do anything because nobody knew how to connect the wires, nobody knew how to to get me there, and uh, they weren't really interested. Nobody was really interested in either because it's a lot of extra work to research that type of thing, and there's no experts anywhere. And I think that a big problem with that too is um, even before you get to that stage. You have to have a pretty good education. Uh, you have to be pretty stable in life in general to, uh, to, to live in the kind of areas that uh, government is strong.
places, just the commute and all these things. There's a lot of obstacles, and uh, it was real. It was actually really challenging, really challenging for myself, coming from a really small community. Uh, I was completely known to do it. I came up here to live with my, uh, my partner, my fiance, and I was I was well motivated by that. And I think that that was that was probably the main reason that got me to this point was that uh, I was motivated. But, uh, if you just moved to the city and tried to get a, a government job, there's there's not a whole lot you can do. And and I find there is a lot of agencies that will help take on the cases. Uh, to try to get you in, into those positions. But I find that those agencies are somewhat, they're maybe not predatory, but they're looking out for their own interests. They want to get some money out of, out of getting you hired. So they're, it's, it's, not a, it's not just a selfless act they're doing, and it's not always in your perfectly best in, in your best interest. So I'd like to see more support to get people into the government that are of Aboriginal ancestry. there's um, two recognized languages it's English and French uh, my first language is Inuktitut I do not qualify to get a bilingual bonus even though my position includes to have the Inuktitut as my language skill set so that's one I think the second one in my opinion is there is lack of mentorship program for specifically for Inuit to get into leadership roles. Um, I want to be able to work my way up, but because my Inuk, my English language is not where I want it to be, I can't seem to get any higher or advance myself. There is lack of Inuit staff nationwide, I think. There should be more Inuit in each department everywhere, especially uh, here in Ottawa and the north of 60. Talking reconciliation... First of all, just in general, as far as what it means and to me and kind of what it means as far as uh, what's going on in the country, uh, my the experience that I bring to this uh, as an Indigenous person will be very different from what others will bring. The background that I bring, the interests and the, the priorities that I bring. In my case, because I'm a mostly assimilated reality, a mostly urban reality, uh, my wife is non-Indigenous, my kids, I... As of today, I'm not uh, not exactly certain that they would be eligible for community membership going forward. That's one of these things where policies might change. So I don't know how that would play out. And at any rate, I, I still have some extended family back in Six Nations, but a lot of that family is now a diaspora all over the country and, and mostly urban, whether it's in Toronto or elsewhere. So the the interest is not necessarily uh, immediate from, for me in terms of my own family. I do obviously have extended family out there for which this is the issues around reconciliation and, and discrimination and rights is an immediate issue. And I want them to see that work is progressing and that things are changing for the better. So the commitments that the government has made in that area are really exciting. 
some of the commitments are pretty new still and some of them are would feel vague and so there's in a lot of places a bit of a disconnect happening as far as the expectations oh we're going to implement all the trc recommendations well how are we going to do that are we actually making the change happen so there's a lot of expectations uh, if you ask indigenous scholars indigenous uh, community representatives in different parts of the country quite a few will say that they're impatient with the government as far as progress on some of these areas and and they're probably right in in a, in a lot of areas and more importantly the government of the day the public service can't count on people and communities just saying oh great the government wants to do reconciliation now let's get on board no the, the so I think the most interesting thing about the government's recent messaging on reconciliation is the recognition, and this is something that the Prime Minister said explicitly, so I don't mind quoting it, that the onus is on governments to change how they do things. And, well, just uh, at the end of August, the Prime Minister announced that there's a plan underway to split Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada into two departments, one to manage the Crown's relations with Indigenous communities and peoples, and a second one to manage uh, the delivery of services to communities separately from the the conduct of relationships and discussions on self-determination negotiations, self-government negotiations, and so on. In the Prime Minister's announcement, he said something to the effect, and I'm going to get it wrong, we have pushed the creaky structures within INAC about as far as they can go, and that we need to make changes to government structures, policies, practices that will allow a new relationship to emerge and allow a new relationship to emerge in a way that is uh, sustainable, that would uh, not be dependent on uh, one government's uh, direction, but that it would be a a lasting change. That's a, a really key recognition that the onus isn't on Indigenous peoples to work with the government of Canada on reconciliation. The, the onus is on the government of Canada to change its policies and practices. And that. So the fact that the Prime Minister recognized that is pretty exciting. Uh, the fact that slowly, piecemeal, sometimes it's messy, sometimes it's in fits and starts, but you're seeing some of those changes start to come to pass. It's, it, that's, that makes it an exciting time to work in this area. But in terms of how government works and how the public service works, Stepping back and just looking at how the processes within government can cut off those different voices, and how do you how do you support that? I get to speak frankly now, you know, as a former public servant, and I put the onus on their deputy head to lead by example. That I didn't feel it was fair that the room was mostly filled with people who were at the middle ranks or lower, which is nothing. I, mean, I was there at one time too. But what was unfair is that those are the people who are buying in and taking an interest. And they have very little influence or authority to change how things get done or the priorities. And I felt that that was a disconnect. And I had no problem saying that to the deputy head. I knew her, which was, you know, sort of helps a bit. But I think it's important to have, um, when you're doing these things, to bring in some outside people too, if you can, because easier for us to find the elephant in the room but it has to be constructive like i didn't give that deputy head my opinion without offering her the solution and when those folks asked me the question about what is they could do and i said well you can only do what you can influence so you can ask for training and and, you know learning more about the indigenous space you can when you're negotiating your work plan build in that you know 
you have some time to discuss things or you, you know, work together on, on through that lens, or you can build in, in your performance agreement that, you know, you'll achieve certain goals and, but you make it built into your performance agreement so that your manager is going to give you the time to do it. Cause if it's not, it, it just won't be part of your day. Right. So you have the influence capacity that you may not, you don't have the authority to run it. Somebody above you does. And that's why I said the deputy, only you as an associate deputy minister, but, um, only you have the authority to tell your leadership. And I said, and I know your leadership. And they're all great people. And they're all extremely busy. But they need to understand this when their staff are asking to do things. They need to understand that it's important. Because we're telling them it's important. The prime minister is telling you it's important in the mandate letters. How are you going to achieve it? You know, I sat on a committee with Global Affairs scratching their head about how they're going to meet those letters. And um, we don't, what we don't do well is we don't resource the need. We don't, we say, yes, this is a priority, but that's about as far as it goes. Our actions don't match the words. Actions speak louder than words. And uh, and that's what, you know, so that's the risk we're in now is that we've got a lot of really great ideas, but no capacity to do it. But yeah, so speaking truthfully, it's sometimes difficult for people, but, but I, you know, I, at the same time, what I'm trying to illustrate is I was constructive in the response. There is an answer. It just takes a little bit of thought and and structure. Now, for the typical Canadian that may not really grasp the importance of of reconciliation, how can you explain to to an average Canadian why this reconciliation process is, is so important for our future as a country? Well, first of all, all Canadians are treaty people. I mean, those, the treaties that were made with Indigenous peoples, and it includes the, the, the First Nations and the Métis and the Inuit. The Inuit have a crown-Indigenous relationship. Uh, they refer to it as the Métis Nation has accords and the First Nations have treaties. But it, it, all Canadians, their governments have, have, have made certain commitments and promises to the Indigenous peoples in this country to, to have a peaceful and respectful relationship so that we can share the land and its resources to mutual benefit. So when, when, those, when those commitments or those promises have been broken over the last 100 years or, or more, 150, 200 years, I think it's in the interest of all communities to, to recognize that, to recognize things like the Indian residential school policy and the impact it has had on Indigenous peoples. Uh, and the uh, you know the intergenerational impacts it's had. Uh, I think it's in the interest of all Canadians to to recognize that number one, to recognize the truth, and that's the truth part of reconciliation. But it's in everybody's interest to reconcile the the impacts of the truth, what really happened, and and, and to do it, their part in making sure that reconciliation works and reconciliation. It seems like a, a huge undertaking, which it is, but it starts with each of us, each each Canadian, each individual doing doing just small little steps to making it a more respectful society, so that Indigenous peoples aren't 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 viewed in their stereotypical ways of the past, but viewed as you know the. the the original peoples of this land who shared their resources and, in fact, ensured the survival of the European people of whose ancestors 
these a lot of Canadians are newcomers, maybe not so much, but they have taken on their reconciliation commitment as well as they become citizens of this country, and and uh, we just try to make it a, b- a better place for everybody, for everyone. So, kind of to answer your question, uh, you know, as Canadians, we all have responsibilities uh, to to making sure that this happens, and Canadian society is what we say it is, and and not uh, go back to the history, but to make it a better future for everyone. Um, I mean, small things like, you know, uh, taking part in Aboriginal Awareness Week or Indigenous Awareness Week and some of the things that happened internally for the federal public service, we have uh, Indigenous Awareness Week, so we have activities in our offices in all departments throughout the country. But for a National Aboriginal Day, and it may be called National Indigenous Day this year, I'm not sure, but for next year. But just a small thing like participating and going to a National Aboriginal Day event and really, um, you know, becoming more aware of the culture and the traditions of Indigenous peoples and, 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 and talking to Indigenous people about, you know, about their culture and about what they do and what 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 they'd like to see happen in the future and finding out how they might be able to help make that happen in in the smallest of ways it's not just huge things that has to happen although those will and can happen but at the individual level it's just becoming more aware and more respectful of indigenous culture that's that's really the starting point I was listening to a um, a podcast uh, while driving a while back, and I was hearing these panel experts talking about the fact that there's some injury caused by the fact that we still have certain names and certain statues and memorials all across Canada. And in particular, they were talking about the Fort Amherst and how one of the Indigenous leaders had given back his Order of Canada because he was facing opposition for over 10 years to rename that port. And I was kind of taken aback a bit when I heard what the uh, panel members were saying about needing to protect our history and not wanting to rewrite our history and perhaps just reframing our history. And uh, it surprised me. It surprised me because to me it was very simple. If I, for example, was assaulted at work by, let's say, uh, one of my managers and that this was common knowledge and everybody agreed that this happened and that my manager would keep his position. And not only that, I would keep receiving emails with his name on it and I would I would see celebratory holidays with his name on it. You know, the injury will not be re- erased, but the insult will not be added to the injury. So when I hear things like that, I say, I don't, I don't really care about Canadian history. I care about Canadian people, and I care about the values that we want as a country. And if I look at reconciliation, I really don't think it stops as an, at an apology. I think that those ports and those statues and those buildings should be renamed and, and, and replaced as a symbol that Canada, we stand strong with those that have been injured, and we are writing the values. We are showing the next generation what we value, who we cherish as heroes, 
And when we tell the history of the new port name, for example, it doesn't mean that the old port name is forgotten. It just is weaved into the story, the new story about what happened, but what we did about it. And I think that will be so powerful for our country to take that approach. And after having seen the movie on the residential schools and being a mother myself, I think we owe nothing less than that kind of unity as a country for this group as we would do for any other group. Where I come from, just last night I was on Facebook looking through some of my friends' lists and came across a couple articles, pieces, videos, short clip videos where an Inuk is interviewing fellow Inuit living in Ichaluit on the beach in a tent. You know, so there's so many issues out there in, in this country alone where you have Canadians and Inuit say they're first Canadians, Canadians first as part of ITK slogan. And in fact, their logo has a Canadian maple leaf flake to really demonstrate how proud they are as Canadians. And yet we have some Canadians living on the beach, freezing to death in a boat or dying from fire from using common stoves in a closed space. So, you know, there's a lot of work that could be done to really address some of these these social issues faced by a lot of the communities across the northern regions. I think it's very difficult for people to imagine people that have never, people that have always been in a city, that people that have always had a middle class income or better to imagine mm-hmm. situations like that or, or like mm-hmm. uh, Grassy Narrows where there are generations of people suffering from mercury poisoning and there's exactly. a lack of clean water. It's because we're not confronted with it every day. It's not our reality. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, almost, exactly. imp- it's almost impossible to imagine that this still exists in mm-hmm. 2017. Exactly. And then when we look at, you know, the United Nations Human Index or best countries to live in, we still top at 10. But then when you bring out the chapters to to that, Aboriginals used to be, I think, 80-something or so, and now they're at, like, high 40s, early 50s. So you're absolutely right, Todd, that it's, 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 um, it's hard for general Canadians to even think that these are the realities faced in some of the northern communities or not having access to safe or clean drinking water. So, yeah, and that's a really good point that you're raising because it's it's really hard for them to imagine that when they're living comfortably, right? You know, they've got access to two, three cars in the driveway, um, homes. One thing that my former mentor, the former president of ITK, who's now passed on, Josie Kusugak, once said as well, in the southern cities, you've got your homes. They're like blocks, you know, your lots. And if you're mowing the lawn, you can't go over your block because then you're invading your neighbor's (laughs) property. (laughs) And, you know, it's so true because we're all boxed in in a lot of the southern cities. 
So sometimes it's not comforting to get out of that, that box and think about others who may not be in a similar box. So I've always remembered that, um, that analogy that he shared about when we say thinking outside the box versus always in the box or in the lines of the box. I participated in a UBC course and and I was really fascinated to hear somebody from South Africa. There was a, a little video and he talked about, you know, their truth and reconciliation process. So he had recognizes some of the parallels in what Canada is going through as to what South Africa went through. And he was saying he'd been away quite a, a long time and he had gone back and he said, there's just so much more to be done in South Africa. There's still so many wrongs to be righted. And I guess one of the things is you have to celebrate every small success. And so for me, even sometimes I get really discouraged um, because it just seems like such a huge mountain. Like, well, we'll never, we'll never get beyond. And yesterday when I did the blanket exercise, one of the facilitators said, you know, it's really, really important that we, we celebrate every small success. And so I started to, to really reflect on that. And I thought, yeah, you know, I was able to fill that workshop. That's a success. Um, I had people saying good words about it and asking for more information. That's a success. And one person at a time. It's like when someone, <laughs> when I was struggling once doing my master's and someone said, you know, I was, they told me, how do you eat an elephant? And she said, one bite at a time. So it's kind of the same thing. We can just move one small step at a time, but it's so important to to recognize and celebrate those small successes because they will grow. And, you know, if we can continue to move it forward and if can people continue to sort of be curious and really open their hearts to want to understand, maybe we can get it right and honor all those those words and treaties and, and agreements that we committed to as a nation. Indigenous Perspectives, Stories from Indigenous Public Servants, is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed on Indigenous Perspectives are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Public servants featured in this episode were Fanny Bernard, Don Bilodeau, Janice Edgar, Ryan Jador, Daniel Jete, Tunichuli Kutu Shirello, Tim Olone, Tim Lowe, and Lisi Nakatarvik. Our main title music is by Boogie the Beat, with additional music provided by Greg Ryder and Chris Dirksen. I'm Todd Lyons, host, writer, and technical producer for this series. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.